Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson. And today we're coming to you from the IBEC HR Leadership Summit at Croke Park. It's sponsored by Irish Life Health. And I'll be speaking to some of the HR leaders about the central role that they play in strategically driving their businesses forward. I'll be talking to Maeve McElwee, who's Director of Employee Relations at IBEC, about the main issues facing HR post-COVID. And the CEO of Laura Lynn Foundation talks to us about how HR has changed in the charity sector. And finally, I'll talk to Megan Rates from Hulse Business School about workers feeling psychologically safe in the workplace. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. Now, first up today, IBEC is Ireland's largest lobby and business representative group with over 260 employees. IBEC engages with key stakeholders in Ireland and internationally to help build a more sustainable future for its members. As well as lobbying, IBEC provides a wide range of professional services and management on all aspects of human resource management. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Director of Employer Relations at IBEC, Maeve McElwee. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hello, how are you? Maybe very interesting uh, conference today. Uh, I think the title of the conference in itself was particularly interesting, HR Leadership. Do you think that this is a moment in time for HR in the structure of organisations at the moment? When we were looking at putting the conference together, so every year it's obviously going to be a, a human resources theme. But over the last two years in particular, we are looking at HR as probably one of the most central departments in every organisation. So all throughout the crisis, we know that our, our HR teams have been really keeping their finger on the pulse at every level, all the way from the CEO's office down to the facilities team, through the administration and all of the the contractors, because they know everybody and they know how everything works. So they have been across everything from occupational health and safety. They've been looking at mental health and well-being. They've doing all the communications, um, everything to packaging up people's equipment and chairs and sending it out to them. So what we really wanted to focus on this year was HR and sort of building that um, building that engagement, building on that um, centrality that they've developed uh, and looking then at what's coming down the track for HR and how they can maintain and make sure that they stay at that centre of the organisation with that power base they already have. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned COVID there because COVID was a people's crisis, right? Uh, particularly yeah. even in a work sense, it was a, a, a question of managing people. So that's where the HR department started to come into that. How do you maintain that momentum now to place the HR department at the centre of strategic decision making for a board and make it less about being operational for board's plans? How does that, you know, integration happen? Yeah, and I think, you know, it's really to build on what has happened over the last two years, and that's to be able to demonstrate the value. So, you know, boards and management teams are always looking to see, well, where do you add value to the organisation? What are you bringing to the table? How do we, you know, look at this and define its value to the organisation? And I think HR needs to continue now to demonstrate that level of value and how across everything from recruitment to 
forward thinking about skills management. What are we going to need for our future? A lot of the themes that we've talked about today, what's changing in our workplace culture, what's changing in our workplace norms and what are we expecting into the future? That's the piece where HR really start to drive the agenda and start to have that really important value add where you're saying we're identifying what's coming next. We're getting ready for it. We won't be overtaken. We're looking to make sure that we have the skills in place, ready to go and the technology to match it. And alongside your conference uh, this week, you also published HR Update, Workplace Trends and Insight. What were the main takeaways from that? Well, I think the key takeaway every year and the the primary piece that people look at is the pay survey uh, that we do. So generally um, around September, we put the survey out and what we're looking at is, you know, what are employers forecasting in terms of pay into next year? So this year we have 80 percent of employers who responded to the survey, so almost 400 who are saying to us they are expecting to increase pay again next year. That, of course, is not unexpected. Um, This is a survey of base pay and what they're coming back with is an average of 3.8% increase. And again, that's more or less what we would have expected to to see coming through on base rates and and fairly consistent with both the local negotiations that we do on behalf of member companies and what we see coming through the Labour Court as well. Pay obviously still a big part of uh, what employees want to discuss with their employers, but so too is the work-life balance issue. Where did you find that feeding into the mix here? Yeah, work-life balance is a really key consideration for um, all employers. So as part of the trends in HR that we looked at, we know that recruitment and retention at the moment in, in this very tight labour market is still right up there at the top of the priorities. So things like remote hybrid and flexible working are all very top of the the HR agenda now to be able to try and uh, look at how that work-life balance can be facilitated for employees. So we've seen lots of employers um, essentially saying that's that's going to be part of their key objective over the course of the, the next year. But some interesting trends now. So where we would have seen employers saying, we're looking at this number of days or we're, we're going to manage in this particular way. Actually, what we're seeing employers now is adapting to the experience of hybrid working and saying, we're moving away from that very, you know, calculated decision around how much and actually moving that decision making down into the teams so the teams and local team managers are starting to talk about well what works for the team rather than trying to manage a one size fits all across an organization that can be very diverse. Yeah would you call this like a testing phase then for a lot of organizations where they're trying to find what is the bespoke solution to their problems? Absolutely. And, you know, it is a piece of advice that we have been giving to members around this whole issue is, you know, this is an iterative process. It's very, very new. So we all worked remotely where that was possible for two years. But working remotely and working in hybrid are are completely different things. And there's so many different complexities that arise around it. So we have been saying to employers, yeah, absolutely. It's important to talk to your own teams around the fact that this will need to be a test and perfect scenario. It's not all going to come together there will have to be changes as you go through and when we've been engaging around this new legislation that's been proposed it has been something we've been saying to uh, the Department of Enterprise that you know 
actually, we should really look at codes of practice in this area, allow organisations an opportunity to see what it looks like before trying to introduce a piece of legislation that effectively gives, uh, you know, the, the same opportunities, but in such vastly different circumstances that that one size fits all will actually just generate more frustration. Yeah, I mean, we can accommodate uh, or try to accommodate employees as much as as we want to. But at the end of the day, management has to report to a board and it will all ultimately be driven by performance and targets still at the end of the day. How do you marry those two things together as a manager at the moment where HR is sort of starting to become much more important than it has been before? Where do you find the balance? I think the balance that a lot of HR teams are looking at is trying to identify what works for the business. Um, And then, you know, there's that bigger communications piece that needs to take place as a result. So, you know, for lots of organisations, what makes an organisation strong is the people that work for it. And there is an element within that of hybrid and remote and flexible, which, you know, that has been a, a growing trend, certainly flexibility. But we're stronger because we come together as as an organisation. We're stronger by the tacit information that we share, by shared experiences, even the conversation. We had a funny conversation about this the other day, even the conversation about Love Island in the canteen with somebody that, you know, you don't do any work with builds a relationship that means you now have an avenue to pick up the phone to that person and ask maybe a work question that you wouldn't ever have thought of asking them before Mm. and you've created a new network. So how we work and how we engage together is actually not just about ourselves and that individual productivity piece. Some of those things that look like disruption or less productivity because somebody's interrupted your work, they're actually productive interruptions. uh, It's what we like to think of them as. So that network building needs to be balanced. So when we all come together as one, the sum of our parts um, is obviously greater. So it's to find the balance between that. That's what our HR teams are trying to work their way through at the moment. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock and we're broadcasting from the IBEC HR Leadership Summit at Croke Park. It's sponsored by Irish Life and Health. And I'm I'm speaking to uh, Maeve McElwee, who is Director of Employee Relations at IBEC. Um, One of the other things that came up uh, quite quite throughout the the day's conference was that issue of engagement with staff and listening. But hearing is a different thing. How in this modern world, if you're representing a large number of um, uh, big organisations who've got hundreds of thousands of staff in some instances, um, how do you move to a situation where you can use modern technology to help with the human performance level that we, we kind of uh, need if, if, if we're going to have to engage with employees going forward in a completely different way? Are there new technologies that can help? Yeah, I think there's lots of new technologies that are, are very valuable, but I think they are a support rather than um, a direct replacement for that interaction and that human interaction. So they they genuinely provide great assistance to the human interaction. But to do the listening and to really have the listening, you need sort of that qualitative time and and data that an in-person conversation will give you. And there's managers at all kinds of levels who can 
move that information and make sure that it's, you know, being acted upon and that it's being taken account of. And in conjunction with that, you can use all of the you know, pulse surveys, different employee engagement surveys and all of the different tech that allows you to feed back in real time um, into the organisation. But actually, you really need to be able to pull together with people who can take the time and sit down and maybe to be available to take the time in maybe a moment of crisis for somebody personally and to be to have that level of availability. And that's still really what builds that relationship and engagement, that sense that there is somebody there on the day that you need them and that you can access them. So it's really a very broad mix. It's interesting you mentioned data because data is the thing probably which is going to ultimately convince um big business leaders to change direction if they can't get the staff that they need and the staff that they want, they're going to have to change for them. And I'm minded of a, a story that one of your speakers told about Henry Ford and how the model of work changed from a six day week to a five day week based on data that he received then. So that leads me to the question about a four day week now. Uh, are you getting a lot of businesses who are getting this type of request from their employers and how employees, how do they deal with that? Yet this is a, it's a really interesting area. And I think, you know, on the face of it, who wouldn't put up their hand and say, gosh, I'd love a four day week. Um, the challenge, of course, is it's like every type of flexible working. It will work really well in some circumstances. And there are without a doubt some uh, companies who have tested it, trialed it and said this really works for us. There are other organisations where it would be incredibly challenging. So even if we think about our tight labour market, the challenges of recruitment that we're seeing at the moment to have the skills to replace the the day in certain, you know, 24-7 operations. So if we think about our care sectors, if we thought about hospitals, you know, those, you know, more productivity in a four day work week won't cover somebody actually being on site on Friday. So those are are real challenges for some organisations. Some of the other real challenges is, of course, we work in a global economy. So if you have organisations that are working a four day work week, but all of your global competition is working differently, very hard to actually make those models sync and still deliver a competitive return for the business. So you'd actually have to change uh, a lot of the operations of sectors in order to make it work. And it's not really very likely that it's going to be anytime soon, I think, unfortunately. But, you know, in terms of a four day work week, if it works for the organisation that you're in, then it is a great flexibility to be able to offer. It's just that in terms of both employers and employees, there's such a range of flexibilities that people want and need that in some situations, employees will say, that's actually just too inflexible for mm. me. I'd really rather have a 10 o'clock start so I can drop the kids to school or I can wait for a carer to come in for a relative I look after. And But I would need that five mornings. Mm. So having it one morning a week is not the type of flexibility I want. So it's all about what works for the business. Yeah, um, it comes back to that bespoke nature for, for whatever company you're working with or for. It's just when we talk about hybrid uh, working, a lot of it is always focused on the location, not about the timing. So if we can work anywhere we want, why can't we work any time we want? But that's another day's debate. Maeve, I just want to finally ask you a little bit about the profession of HR, because really impressive people attending the conference as well as the ones who were speaking at it today that I met in very interesting interesting perspectives on their own career and how it's changed over the last number of years. If you want to get into HR, what are the kind of traits that somebody needs? 
That's a really difficult question. Um, I think for somebody in HR, really, it's um, it's in many ways, it's a really practical uh, mindset. So you have to be able to think about, you know, lots of different things. Um, a, a story that I remember once said to me is one of the reasons they always came to IBEC was that um, our our expertise might not necessarily extend to their particular problem, but that we had expertise in thinking about complex problems. And when you work in a human resource area, the problems are complex because they're individual to the people that you're working with. They're individual to the sector, to the company. So I think any backgrounds that, that you have good problem solving skills um, and the ability to you know, be able to be empathetic and understand the challenges that people have in the day to day working lives and a real interest in helping people to get over that. Um, It's a great way into HR and it's a it's a really, really interesting career because it can take you anywhere. And um, there are so many different avenues. Uh, It's a it's a great way to go. Sound advice to leave us with. That was Maeve McElwee, who's Director of Employee Relations at IBEC. Maeve, thank you and have a successful conference. Thank you very much. Today we're broadcasting from the IBEC HR Leadership Summit at Croke Park and it's sponsored by Irish Life Health. Coming up next, Megan Rates, author of Speak Up and Say What You Want, joins us to discuss why it's important that employees are now finding their own voice. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. Now, today, as I said, we're broadcasting from the IBEC HR Leadership Summit at Croke Park, and it's sponsored by Irish Life Health. Now, as we've learned over recent years, a healthy work environment is one of the key factors that is going to determine how content a person is in their job. I'm joined now by a woman who's very passionate about helping employees to flourish in the office by communication and outreach. Megan Ritz is Professor of Leadership and Dialogue at Holt International Business School. Megan teaches leaders how to foster a psychologically safe work environment where employees feel it's okay to speak up without fear of retribution. Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's good to be here. Thank you. Now, Megan, your contribution to the conference today was very insightful and and interesting. And I think one of the things that came across from your um, Uh, part of the the conference was that culture is such an important part of making employees feel safe. How does one go about kind of developing a culture which is open uh, for employees? What type of uh, advice do you give companies in in that regard? It's interesting because that word culture is quite ambiguous to many people. We we use it all the time and culture change and we need this sort of culture and, and it's quite difficult to get your hands around it. One lens in, not the right one, just one lens in and the lens that I've been researching is seeing culture in terms of what I call conversational habits. And that's the habits that we all have around what we talk about and what we don't talk about. And also the habits around whose voices we hear and whose we don't. So one way of looking at culture is around what gets said and who gets heard. And uh, my work focuses in on really examining that and looking at that and watching what we assume is being talked about (laughs) and what we assume about silence and obviously looking at the consequences as well because what gets said and who gets heard have enormous consequences on us as individuals 
but also in terms of our organisations, it, it, it makes or breaks ethical conduct, innovation, agility, talent retention, uh, inclusion, you name it. A lot of things come down to uh, whether we're able to speak openly about certain topics and whether we're able to include different and diverse voices. And do you think that there is a change happening at the moment where people feel more able to actually speak their own truth? And is that coming from the employee or is that coming from organisations understanding that a culture of openness is important? I would honestly say that there's still generally a culture of silence more than there is a culture of speaking up. However, for all the reasons that I've just mentioned, many leaders and organisations, more and more, are inviting their employees to speak up. Uh, there are so many speak up initiatives going on across the world and across different industries. Uh, added to that, there's many leaders inviting their employees to bring their whole selves to work. And what this does result in is employees are beginning to speak up about different topics. And one of those topics is around wider social and environmental issues and how, if at all, the organisation is seeking to influence or make a stand on issues that traditionally we've kind of separated business away from. Uh, so over the last two to three years, I've been particularly interested in that area because that is an increase in where employees are speaking up and has many consequences for leaders and managers who are having to be in conversations that they aren't well practiced in. And in many cases, actually hadn't quite anticipated when they asked their employees to speak up in the first place. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's a big difference, isn't it, between asking people to speak up and then actually hearing what they have to say. Just expand on that piece about what people are actually talking about now uh, and the 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 prevalence of activism uh, and how that fits into um, company discussion and with employees at the moment. Mm. So employee activism is on the rise, but I'll, I'll before I head down that path, I will just mention that word activism because it's a very loaded term and even the, the listeners now, uh, it'll be quite interesting if you're listening right now, just think to yourself, what comes to your mind when you hear the word activism? What emotions and what words? Uh, activism can mean everything and anything from, you know, really radical acts and uh, even dangerous acts. Or, do, do you think it has ne negative connotations for most people? It, it does. And in some cases, it doesn't. So it really is a spectrum. And we've, we've surveyed thousands of people on that question. And many people see activism as passionate and change and inspiring. It really kind of depends on what topic and which country you're in. And, you know, the label of an activist is really cool in some places and on some topics, and it's life-threatening in other places and on other topics. So at the start of any conversation on activism, we have to just pause and go, hang on a second, what are we talking about? In our research, we define activism as voices of difference 
in the workplace that are seeking to influence their organisation on wider social and environmental issues. So that's a pretty broad remit of, of all the sorts of change agency and topics uh, that we see people speaking up more and more about. Why is that finding its way into the workplace now, though? Uh, why now? Because like historically, I would think of if I want to be an activist about some particular issue, that's my own personal responsibility and I can you know, advance that cause in my own time. Why is it important, though, in a work context now? So I think there's a constellation of events that are happening all at once. We have, uh, for example, very low levels of trust in institutions that traditionally we've expected to take a stand on wider social and environmental issues. So in terms of governments and unions in some countries as well, trust levels are going down. So people seeking change are looking more and more to their own organisation and their chief executives to take a stand. There's a generational shift that's been much talked about. We have a generation that, for very good reasons, uh, is extremely interested in things like climate change, gender, race, equity. Um, we have technology that can enable collective voice in a way that we've never had previously. So that ability to be an activist and even across organisational boundaries link up with other employees uh, really means that people voice in a, in a different way now to the ones that they have before. I think another thing is that organisations are talking far more about ESG and they're making statements and, and in some cases profoundly grand statements around what they stand for, their vision, their organisational purpose. And employees, as long, uh, uh, along with other stakeholders, are listening to that and going, OK, let me just make sure you're doing what you're saying. And if you're not doing what you're saying, I'm going to call you out on it. And maybe I wouldn't have done that previously, but I will now. I guess the final thing is leaders are asking people to speak up. Mm. If you want people to speak up and bring their whole selves to work, you've got to be ready for those conversations. If you're just tuning in, we're broadcasting from the IBEC HR Leadership Summit at Croke Park. It's sponsored by Irish Life and Health. And I am speaking to Megan Ritz, who's Professor of Leadership and Dialogue at the Holt International Business School. Megan, you mentioned there um, that notion of generational shift. Another thing I took from the conference today is there's been a big shift in the role of HR in organisations um, and their strategic importance in terms of um, planning. So if we want to get to a stage, we're at a stage where leaders are asking employees to speak up more. Um, what advice do you give to employees? How do you become a better communicator in a workspace? Mm. So one concept which comes from academic research which I really like it's not my concept it's it's by a couple of academics called Mayerson and Scully they have a term that they call um, uh, uh, tempered radical now when we want to change something in a system whatever that is we have to be radical in order to challenge the status quo if we're not radical nothing shifts but if we're too radical the system spits us out. Mm. <laughs> so we have to temper our action and so that we can speak the same language. So that, But if we do that too much, of course, we don't make any difference at all. 
So the activists that we've been speaking to have to navigate that quite tricky line between being, you know, I have to be radical, but if I'm too radical, people won't hear me, I won't be able to influence. And um, I think one of the key things that we heard from, we've interviewed and, and surveyed, again, thousands of activists, when we looked at the data, the top code in terms of what helps you be proactive as an activist, surprised us slightly, and it shouldn't have done. But the top code was listening. And, you know, when we think about activists, we think about advocacy, we think about people communicating and, and, and speaking. Actually, what we found in our research is uh, are those people that can influence change very well are the people that really listen. Mm. And they really listen to different opinions. And many of us are really fairly rubbish at doing that. You know, we come into a conversation and we hear a different opinion and we kind of close things down. Very good activists are very good at keeping their ears wide open and learning and empathizing even, and then being able to communicate in a way that can be heard. And the people who have to do the listening uh, understand what's being said are the leaders in an organization and the managers. How are they responding to this? Uh, I, again, referring back to your contribution today, I think you speak about an optimism bubble yeah. in relation to some management tiers. Uh, do people think they're doing better than they are? So that was one of the biggest findings in our research is that many managers and leaders overestimate the degree to which people are speaking up around them. And they also overestimate how approachable they are. Mm. And then their listening skills. There's a number of reasons why we all overestimate our listening skills, actually. Um, but it's a real problem because some of the managers I've been working with haven't realized that a particular issue is as important as it is with their employees. They've thought that they had their finger on the pulse and they don't really. So that's what we call an optimism bubble. It's when we, we think we're listening, we think we're hearing what we need to hear, but actually we're seeing the world and our organizational world through sort of advantaged lenses and that can really catch you out and catch organizations by surprise as well i heard some statistics the other day which is we can speak at a rate of 200 words per minute but we think at a rate of 900 words per minute so maybe what i'm saying is not even really what i'm trying to say and a manager in that role trying to kind of understand the employee employee it's a very long process, isn't it? You can't take a snapshot of somebody in one day. You have to kind of really understand them. There's a relationship there. Yeah, and one thing that I'm really interested in right now is how do we create the spaces in our workplaces where we can actually just pause enough to see the human being, to be able to actually really engage in listening, in speaking in ways that are different how do we create those sorts of spaces in a workplace that let, let's face it for most of us is pathologically busy you know and and very tightly defined according to certain agendas and yes of course that's a strength up until the point that it really isn't and we've lost the spaces where we are connecting as human beings we've lost the relational spaces and as we say in our research the small conversations are the ones that make the big ones possible. Mm. 
What do you think, Megan, has prompted the change in attitude to this? Is it COVID that has caused this reset for us all to think so differently about uh, the workspace environment and our relationship with each other? I think it's just many, again, many different things coming together. But certainly COVID has made us rethink particularly the well-being aspect of it. At least it did at the beginning. Do you um, think we're, there's a danger we're all slipping back into those bad habits? Yes, I think there is. And I think we've we've slipped back generally into this very, very high-pressured, output-orientated, tangible world. And whilst, as, as I said, whilst, of course, that's a strength... At some point, it, it 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 isn't one, and we've we've squeezed out the spaces where we can connect, connect and communicate, uh, and that has implications. You know, before we know it, ethics, uh, as I said, innovation, the ability to imagine futures, the ability to include voices that aren't being heard, suddenly we don't have spaces in which to do that. Well, Megan, thank you very much for taking the time uh, to talk to us today. We're very grateful. That was Megan Ritz, Professor of Leadership and Dialogue at Holt International Business School. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is Mandy Johnston broadcasting from the IBEC HR Leadership Summit at Croke Park and it's sponsored by Irish Life Health. Coming up next, we'll be joined by an organisation with meaning and purpose at its core. I'll be speaking to the CEO of Laura Lynn. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, today, as I said, we're broadcasting from the IBEC HR Leadership Summit at Croke Park, sponsored by Irish Life Health. Now, Laura Lynn has solidified itself in Ireland as a very cherished outlet for children and their families at a time of great difficulty for many families. It works very hard with families and children to make the most of those precious moments that they will spend together. I'm delighted to be joined now by Kerry McLaverty, who is CEO of Laurelin. Kerry, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Now, Kerry, for anyone out there who doesn't know, just give us a brief uh, outline of what it is exactly that Laurelin does. So Laurelin, we're probably best known for being Ireland's only children's hospice. Uh, we provide a range of services for families across Ireland. Uh, we are a full family service, so it's not just a child with a life-limiting condition, but it's their entire extended family that we provide supports to. And that range of supports can be anything from respite in our hospice in Dublin. It can be respite in the home. Uh, we provide a range of family support, so from play therapy, music therapy, psychology. We have symptom management support. We have have end of life care, obviously, and then we have ongoing bereavement support. But Laurelin, it's a little bit more in that we also provide services to a, uh, a range of children who access us for disability respite. So a small number. Uh, we have a service catering for up to 75 families. Uh, and we also have a home for six individuals uh, who came into our services, children and who have lived on into adulthood. So a very broad range of, of services, a lot of staff, I would imagine, uh, who help you to do that on a day to day basis and also volunteers. Absolutely. We are blessed to have a, a staff of about 150 uh, incredible uh, employees who work across the services, both clinical and non-clinical. Uh, but we are equally blessed to have almost the same number of volunteers who provide uh invaluable uh, support to the work that we do uh, free of charge and they do this week in week out and we have many of them who do who have done this for many many years it's incredible we had a recent uh, employee recognition awards service uh, which recognized over 92 of our staff and volunteers who have been 
at Laura Lynn for either five, 10, 15 and even some for over 20 years. So it's a level of, I suppose, commitment and dedication to an organisation and really tells me as the CEO that we're doing something right at Laura Lynn to be uh, to be able to, to garner this level of, of commitment and support. Yeah, particularly for volunteers, that retention rate as well is quite important, isn't it? Uh, one of the things that you spoke about today was um, the definition of work. And I thought that was very interesting because the definition of work is different different for, for all of us. Will you just talk us through uh, the purpose that you spoke about today at the conference? Yeah, so it was interesting. And, and uh I'm not a HR professional, so for me being at a HR summit like today, I I Googled uh, the word work, the noun, what is work? And it's interesting that you get a a huge variation and some of them focused on this uh, mental or physical effort, uh, but some was allocating it to in return for money some said it was due to you know recognition or or award or or something achievements uh, but the one that I like best is the definition this is work is something that you do to achieve a purpose and uh, that was really the focus of what we wanted to bring uh, from Laura Lynn today uh, was to outline the fact that people are looking nowadays for purpose in their work and it's something that I think Laura Lynn is it's what we do really well I think we align what we try to deliver and our vision is to make every day better for everyone in our care and we talk about putting life into a child's day not days into a child's life and I think that's something that is an incredibly uh, I suppose it's it's a purpose that I think a lot of people can really commit to. Mm. And actually when you start thinking about working in an organisation like yours from that perspective your my whole perspective of working in an organisation like that changes completely because if you are seeking purpose in your in your world of work what 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 better purpose could you have? But I would imagine that um, people will look at it and say it is a very rewarding place to work, but it obviously has to bring with it great challenges because of the nature of the work you do. How do you then ensure well-being of the people who are working for you in that environment? Yeah, and it's definitely something that we're hugely cognizant of because healthcare more widely, we know that burnout and stress, uh, you know, those are things that are commonly experienced. Uh, and we talk about, you know, our employees needing to instill the sense of resilience because, you know, uh, the intensity of the work that we do at certain times. Now, don't get me wrong, people have a perception around children's hospice care as being a really sad place and, oh my God, I could never work there. And yes, there is the reward part, but actually it's a bit of a misconception about children's palliative care. We spend about 90% of our time it being a really happy place. Our focus is on creating really wonderful, engaging memories for families that they can have then as legacies. So it actually, when you come into the grounds of Laurelin, it's a really warm, welcoming, really, really happy place. Yes, we have our sad days, uh, but actually most of the time it's about being really happy. But on those sad days, there are definitely things that we need to do for our staff to to mind them. Um, you know, I suppose caring for the carers, if you like. So we've a range of supports that are that are in place. Uh, you know, we have an employee assistance program that that's helpful in terms of counselling and support, so you can can receive confidentially. But we also do things like clinical supervision. We do clinical debriefing. So after we've had a really difficult case, uh, we come together. As as a team, we share our emotions. So there's lots of, I suppose, um, psychology support, social work supports that we make sure that we cover over to make sure the staff feel protected in the work that they do and that we're addressing the emotions as opposed to staff taking that home with them. Mm. And that's the culture then that you try and develop within the organisation. Um, and it's something that we heard a great deal about today uh, throughout the conference. Could you just, um, you touched on it there a minute ago, some of the staff initiatives that you've had to try and um, appreciate the staff within the organisation. Can you talk us 
through some of those. Sure. Well, I suppose our, our, our presentation as a whole is about, we talked today about winning the hearts and minds and, and, and we spoke earlier about the, the purpose piece and we feel that that's really a way that you can win their hearts and you get people wanting to come and work for you and, and they you, you attract staff to come and work for you and identify with what you do as an organisation. But in terms of winning the minds, this is the bit that we, we think is, is, is what helps our employee retention and what keeps our staff. So we have a range of, of things that we've tried to do to, I suppose, make sure that our employees feel valued and proud because that's core to our people objective in our strategic plan. Uh, we want we want employees to feel that they're making a difference. So, but also that they're supported to grow in the organisation. So we have a really large learning and development uh, focus for our staff that shows them when they come into the organisation, there is a career path and we will invest in you as an employee. Um, so we have a lot of supports around uh, leadership development and supporting staff to attend further education. Uh, so employees feel that they are valued. Uh, we do a huge amount around core competencies. So we have, uh, we've identified us with six core competencies that we offer that we feel whether you're clinical or non-clinical you might work as a staff nurse you might work in facilities you might work in fundraising but actually there are core competencies across the organization and uh, that we feel all employees should buy into so we're rolling out things like that um, we've engaged with uh, our values program so we, we we got our staff really engaged when we developed our organizational values so it was a bottom-up approach if you like um, and our our, our, our our I suppose our staff were invited to participate in an exercise where they identified compassion, collaboration and excellence as our values. But even further than that, we got our clinical psychologist to do an exercise with all of our staff and volunteers where they then said, OK, what does compassion, collaboration and excellence mean to you and how are you going to live those values? So they identified the character strengths that go with each of those core values. So it gives them, I suppose, an ownership over the culture of the organisation. And it's not us just putting up some nice values on a wall somewhere uh, and staff walk past and they go, oh, yeah, those are our values. But this is actually something that they take ownership of mm. and they live mm. in their day to day work. Yeah, they're invested in it themselves Absolutely. because they've contributed to it. If you're just tuning in, we're broadcasting from the IBEC HR Leadership Summit at Crow Park and it's sponsored by Irish Life Health. And I'm talking to uh, Kerry McLaverty of Laurel Lynn. Kerry, one of the other things I want to ask you is about the journey of Laurel Lynn because it's, it's been very successful, but I'm sure there have been difficult times in the organisation. You know, we've seen difficult regulatory issues with various different charities. You just talk to me about some of the challenges that the organisation has faced. Sure. Well, I suppose, as I told you, we, we have those kind of three strands to our service. Um, so historically, the journey of Laurel Lynn, as we started as the Children's Sunshine Home, which is the disability, I suppose, element of what we provide. The hospice itself just turned 11 years old in, in September, just passed. Um, and we've really seen, I suppose, one of the biggest challenges in developing the hospice, which is, I suppose, it's the, the, the biggest element of what we now provide, um, has been that journey to firstly to, I suppose, establish ourselves within the healthcare sector, because Children's palliative care is very small, it's very niche. We are the only children's hospice and we had to essentially, I suppose, fight for recognition in the space um, to, to get acknowledged by funders, by other providers in the healthcare sector. So that was the early days of us establish, establishing ourselves. Um, and then I suppose further to that, to that, the biggest thing really was, uh, I suppose, the funding challenge. Uh, and we can't ignore it. We, we are a charity. And um, so we, we operate in that space. And until 2021, uh, Laurel in uh, the hospice, uh, where the disability had full funding un under uh, a Section 38 agreement with the HSC, the hospice itself had no funding. And um, so we were operating until 2021 uh, 
through fundraising, uh, which is pretty incredible to, to grow that service. So we were absolutely thrilled um, having you know made our case uh, and uh, with the support of the Department of Health uh, in 2021 to finally get some element of core funding. Uh, it's not everything and it's a, it's a start. It's a great start. And they have really, I have to say, uh, we, we've seen their growing interest uh, in developing the area of children's palliative care and their support for Laura Lynn has grown. But funding remains obviously a challenge because we're still... Uh, predominantly re- reliant uh, on on the generosity of, of the Irish public and, and donations to come in. So that continues to be a challenge. Well, it's great recognition of the work that you do and, you know, the value of the staff. It's recognition for them as well. But as you say, it's not going to solve all your problems. But um, how, how do you go about those fundraising tasks in a post-COVID situation? Has that model changed for you? Absolutely. Uh, Fundamentally, uh, and I think you talk to any charity and and they've really been challenged by this. I would say, thankfully, um, Laura Lynn were, I suppose you could say we had early mover advantage uh, in some ways because we had moved uh, back in in 2019 towards uh, Facebook challenges and we tried our our first digital challenge. And so we kind of had a a template. So when everything went, because all of the, the, the community fundraising that we would previously relied on and corporate challenges and events like the Dublin Marathon and our, you know, our Heroes Ball and all of these face-to-face events that would have been our, our big core, uh, core fundraising funding, yeah. activities, they were all gone. And it was like, oh my goodness, is fundraising going to fall off a cliff? And and so we were, you know, quickly kind of going, okay, th- this is this is going to be massive. But thankfully, we we jumped straight onto the, the digital platform. And as I say, we were ready to go with that. So we, I suppose, it was incredible during uh, COVID and we didn't anticipate how successful those challenges would be. Um, Absolutely remarkable. So again, people... Uh, looking at, and similar to what our staff are looking for now in terms of that sense of purpose and, and meaningful engagement during lockdown when people were confined to their homes and, and five kilometres from their home they were looking for something meaningful to do with their, their time and so engaging with you know walking challenges or skipping challenges or swimming challenges or whatever it may be was something that really caught the imagination of, of the public so it was one of the things that thankfully brought us through COVID um, and we, we also suppose got some really um, key support I think charities and general things like the Late Late Show and they really you know I suppose that the generosity of of the Irish public really came to the fore and that collective empathy that that society seemed to uh, stir and, and arise during Covid and um, thankfully charities like Laura Lynn and others definitely benefited from that I suppose the challenge now is in this moving towards that this post-Covid hopefully era you know, will that sustain or are people, do they have fatigue with these types of challenges and, and is is fundraising about to fundamentally challenge again as we kind of meet back in person? And so we're watching that space very closely. Um, did I see somewhere that you've you've taken up a directorship with the wheel as well? That's right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Congratulations. So thank you. Uh, Laura Lynn has has been a longstanding member of the wheel as an organisation, um, as an as their umbrella organisation. Um, and so I was nominated, well, ratified, I suppose, by the membership uh, as as a, a new director. So, uh, yeah, really excited, I suppose, to be able to represent Laura Lynn at that level to to learn from the operations of the wheel, but also, um, I suppose, for me personally, to be able to feel like I'm, I'm uh, giving something back to the charity and community and voluntary sector uh, on a broader scale. Well, Kerry, uh, we certainly, I think I speak for everyone here today, we were certainly very impressed by the work that you do. And thank you so much for taking the time to share some of the infi- insights about your organisation with us. That was Kerry McClafferty of uh, Laurel Lynn. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. 
Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. We've been broadcasting from Croke Park for the IBEC HR Leadership Summit. It's been sponsored by Irish Life Health. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the Newstalk app. If you want to get in contact with us, as always, you can email takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, and also to Hugo De Silva on sound with Gavin Blake here at Croke Park. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. But from me, Mandy Johnston, that was Taking Stock from Croke Park at the IBEC HR Leadership Summit. Enjoy the rest of your day.